I'd like the opportunity to talk about our great friends at Grimley's, the number one source for fasteners and construction supplies in Melbourne. If you're on a construction site and need product urgently, then you can count on Grimley's Direct. Getting your orders to you on time, every time at speed with our fleet of Grimley's vans and trucks direct from us to you. It's that simple. Grimley's has been in the game for more than 30 years, earning a reputation built on grit, determination, and a focus on delivering the best sourced fasteners and construction supplies with a whatever-it-takes type attitude. Uh, whether it's a large commercial job, a small domestic little project, hard-working tradies need the right products at the right time. Grimley goes above and beyond to deliver on the details. Grimley's always aims for the best solutions to your products. Go to grimleys.com.au for delivery that you can count on. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Life of Brian. My name's Harrison. Brian, welcome. Get up, would you? I am up. Get up. You're the one that's rubbing your eyes. That you don't want to be here. You've made no. the trip to Melbourne. I'm excited in the about our guest today because it's uh, it's F1 nature and it's right up my alley. You're a big fan. Yeah, we've got I Andrew am. Westercott coming on the show. Who is who is he, Brian? Well, he's the former CEO of the Australian Grand Prix Corporation, and he was for well, he worked there for some seventeen years in total. Um, has been he, the mastermind behind the success of F one in Australia. In yeah, terms of the Grand he Prix. has, he has, um, and we look forward to having a chat with him. He's just stepped aside in that role after a long period of time, so I look forward to chatting with him and his experiences in what is would have to be one of the most interesting jobs in town, I reckon. Yes. Before we get started, we need to look after our sponsors, Grimleys. We are proudly brought to you by Grimleys, the number one source for fasteners construction supplies in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Been seeing the vans around? What's No, but I need to drill through a stainless steel bench top. So if Sam, the brains of Grimley's down Sam there, Grimley. Yep. Sam Grimley, if he could possibly get in touch with me or I'll get in touch with him yep. about what hole saw I can use to drill through a stainless steel bench top, that'd be good because they will definitely have the drill down there. They have everything for everyone. So as we um, get closer to the the footy season, I just wanted to ask a couple of questions. It's probably a bit of a dated conversation because the news came out a few weeks ago, but the the rule around revealing body weights for players. For, 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 for the men. For the men. Yeah. Because we don't do it for the women, which is fair enough, and I get that completely. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure I get it with the men. Um, I, I just don't know. Max Gorn come out a couple of weeks ago and said, oh, well, look, they don't take up-to-date information annually anyway, anyway which is true. Normally, my, for instance, I played a long time ago, but the first time in my first year I filled out a form and I never filled out another form at all and so my way. weight and height remained the same for the next 10 years. Um, and so I, I get that, but I think they're probably a little bit more um, – uh, have a little bit more ability to do that on a more regular basis these days. I think it's important that we know from the men' point of view. You know, if someone goes in an isolation play to full forward, full back, and you've got a um, a guy that's twenty kilo heavier playing on a guy that's obviously less twenty, then that's a pretty significant moment in the game. And you know, we can talk about the tactics involved in the, in the difference in weight. I think when a, uh, another example of when a when a player comes back um, into a new season having lost uh, three, four, five kilo because he wants to play in a different position. I think that's important to let people know. Same if a player's put on four or five kilos because he needed to bulk up and build in strength, then it's important for people to know that um, know that so that we can tell people why he's done that. Yeah. Um, so there are many reasons why 
why why why weight should be known publicly. I just don't see. I just I'm sorry, but I don't see any reason why it shouldn't re, why it should remain confidential. What was uh, Pink- I mean? They get weighed. Ev- this, th- these footballers get weighed every day when they turn up at the club. Well, they, every day they'll get weighed. Mo- they'll get weighed before and after training to yeah. see how much fluid they've uh, lost. So they're getting weighed so much. Surely they're immune to the fact that their weight means anything mm. publicly. What was uh, peak performance barge weighing in at? Uh, about well, when I first started, I reckon I was ninety-one as a sixteen, seventeen-year-old kid. And you're not like hugely tall. That's reasonably big for an eighteen-year-old yeah, kid. Yeah, and I got to one hundred and seven. But ideally, if I was a hundred or just under, that would be perfect. So one one hundred and seven was big. Uh, one hundred and seven, uh, you know, I could still play. Other than your head, where were you holding the weight? <laughs> Smart ass, <laughs> absolute smart ass. Uh, uh, While we're talking about the glory days, and this is just off the cuff, what's your greatest footballing memory? Uh, well, I never won a premiership, but I was involved in a couple of clubs that did win premierships when I was there. So they were they were pretty pretty great days. But probably my f- my f- I won't say it's my greatest moment because it wasn't, but my greatest memory probably be my first game of footy. And we were playing Carlton at Princess Park and I happened to be playing on the greatest defender of all time in the AFL team of the century on the halfback flank in Bruce Dool. He was like the, the best, doormat. the flying doormat. And in that game I actually removed his headband and he got very grumpy with me because he didn't like people removing his headband. But I got one kick and one handball for the game so he absolutely toweled me up. I remember before the game started, Merv Kane, who I think was a – four-time premiership player at Richmond at that time. He was a great guy, Chunky. And he just as we're about to run out in the ground, we're in the race, and he says to me, Ryan, this is going to be the greatest day of your life. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, it could be. You know, playing my first game, all my dreams fulfilled, blah, blah, blah. Well, when you come off the ground, you've had one kick and one handball. It was the worst day in my life playing on Bruce Stool, I can tell you. So from a memory point of view, that's something I remember vividly. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> only up from there, I guess. You could well, only go one way. Yeah. I mean, you could say when you kick 100 goals and all that sort of thing, but I don't like to mention the fact that, um, you know, I kicked 100. But you mentioned it. Yeah, but I mentioned it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the lead up to the footy season, how much would you even think about football? And as we approach games. What, now? Yeah, now. And and how much football would you watch? Do you watch any? Yeah, so in the leader, in the couple of weeks leading up to the season, because I don't start until the season starts, the actual season, not the pre-season. As so, in your job. Yeah, yep. so I would watch I would watch every pre-season game that's broadcast. Um, I would watch all of those, particularly honing in on the ones. If I look at my, say, first weekend of football, I look at the games that I'm calling in the first two weekends. And I would try and cover off, first of all, all of those teams. So, um, And if I can't cover them off by viewing them in a game situation, in a practice game situation, I'll go to training mm. and, and have a look at them. Because and you're looking out for I, a haircut, a I, new tattoo? Yeah, or I'm looking out for all that stuff. I'm looking out for identification purposes. Um, information purposes, you might – Saddle up when you're at training next to a football manager or GM of footy or whoever and get some info out of them as well. Um, but when I'm watching on TV, I'm purely looking for identification purposes. Has that guy bleached his hair? Has he got a new tattoo? How can I identify him? What positions he playing? Is that new? Um, you know, anything that's new about, about the way that the individual or the team look, I'm definitely – 
honing in on that. I'd say I really start to hone in two weeks before the season starts when those practice games are on and I can get a get a good look and I'll watch basically every game of footy from, from there on. Yeah. Changing gears a little bit, um, summer and the Christmas holiday period, you've had a lot of people down in Lawn. I've been down there a lot of the time. Um, and because you're sort of why off, is this a Q and A with why, why am I being asked? Because you're the star of the show. You don't ask me any questions, and there's a reason for it. Yeah, because apparently I'm boring and not interested. Well, people are not interested. In exactly. Yeah. And so I'm going to continue my question. Yeah. So down in Lawn, you're off the grid type setup, but the thing I'm asking about is you've been freaking out about water. Tanya turns on a tap and it's running for – you've got to let it get hot first. So she's trying to get it hot. Before it even gets hot, you're saying, oh, water. You've got to, no, we've got no water. Sorry, but you don't need hot water to wash a coffee cup. So yeah. you don't have to leave the tap on for 10 minutes to let the hot water come through to wash a coffee cup. You can wash it in cold water. You can wash it straight away. I wash my coffee cup every time I use it. I wash it with cold water and I do it in about 10 seconds flat. You don't wash your coffee cup. Anyway, here's the thing. Here's the thing. So you're 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 the leader of the pack here. You're the leader of your generation in all of this. You, what are you talking? Your about? generation, your mates, uh, Jesse's mates, and Jesse. You know, you all talk about global warming and you know keep the planet nice and all of that sort of thing. None of you actually practice what you preach. None of you. You don't practice what you preach, other than put rubbish in a bin. That's all you do for the earth. I actually I actually do something. I, we live completely off-grid. We're not connected to the grid. In fact, we had a quote to connect the power to our house at Lawn that was a million dollars because it had to run, be run through National Park, over a river, under a bridge, all of that. One was, million dollars to get connected to regular power, yeah, town so, power. So it was, it was just – it couldn't happen. So we had to find another way. So we, we are completely off-grid running on solar power. That's how we operate. How many panels so are we don't, don't confuse people by getting them uh, – you know, ahead of yourself just here. What I, the point I'm making here is I am actually doing something for the planet. I am actually running – I'm probably one of very few people, very few people – in this world that's actually running completely off-grid, not just with my electricity. I'm self-sustaining with my water. I'm self-sustaining with my sewerage, and I'm self-sustaining with my rubbish outlet. So I have all of those things covered, and I actually I, – I don't preach it. But I practice it. You preach it, but you don't practice it. All right, I'm going to get onto the. I, I'm going to get onto We that store in a over five hundred thousand liters of water at our place, and so that is why all, do you care about the tap being hang on? on? And that is caught off our roof. And why do I care? See, this is this is another thing with your generation. You all preach how precious water is, don't you? Oh, the creeks are lovely and they're flowing down. Don't damn the Franklin and all this crap. But but none of you actually. You think about where your water comes. It comes out of a tap and you think that's great. Guess what? Ours is out of a tank and we only have as much as what is caught off the roof. So therefore, it is bloody precious. How often are you checking your water? It is really precious. Every day I check my water. How much have we used? Is the tank still on the top? Is it still right full? Because you never know when you're going to get a hot period. Pump some up from the bottom tank to the top tank. Do I need to switch it around a bit? What do I need to do to distribute the water evenly across the property? Can I have the sprinkler on for 10 minutes today? I think about all of those things. Whereas your, your mob, you don't give any thought to any of that. This is what real preservation of the planet is about. It is about doing. It is about actually doing 
Anyway, <laughs> come on, let's move on. What? Who's our Go, guest today? Uh, no, we're not moving on. You're a real eco warrior, and that's great. I am, um, and but, I don't. I don't but go you're around. Actually, not doing it by choice. But I don't you've go around for, and you, preach it. And I, I am doing it by hand, choice. You, you've been forced to do so. No, no, I'm doing it by choice. I could have um, got bought a place in town. Yeah, which I, I wanted to live. Eventually. I wanted to live off grid, out in the bush, and uh, be a warrior, and yep. be a real. A real warrior, a real um, conservationist, um, and you know. Oh, no, I'm with you. I, I haven't I shot think, an animal since I've been. I there. think all new homes that are built should have a solar panel and a tank. Um, this is my thing about. Look, I, we, we're not experts in this field, so let's take South Australia, Western Australia, Northern Territory, and Queensland. Every one of those states, I cannot believe that it is not mandatory. That when you apply for a building permit so that it, it applies to all new homes, that they have to have solar panels on their roof to generate a certain percentage of power, that they have to have a certain size rainwater tank to catch water off their roof to consume. I can't believe that in those states that that is plentiful, sun and water, that that is not a, a requirement. requirement of new building in uh, those states, uh, we don't get as much sun as as all of those states. I just can't believe in Australia that we're not doing that. Hmm. Uh, you know, forget about bloody wind power and all this other stuff. Generate your own power. Houses are capable of, of generating their own power, and over the next twenty years, as as um, technology improves, that's going to become even more um, uh, obvious. Absolutely. Andrew Westercott is up next. Ah, uh, yes, half time in this episode of The Life of Brian. Now, I'd like to give this message. I'd like the opportunity to talk about our great friends at Grimley's, the number one source for fasteners and construction supplies in Melbourne. If you're on a construction site and need product urgently, then you can count on Grimley's Direct. Getting your orders to you on time, every time at speed with our fleet of Grimley's vans and trucks direct from us to you. It's that simple. Grimley's has been in the game for more than 30 years earning a reputation built on grit, determination, and a focus on delivering the best sourced fasteners and construction supplies with a whatever-it-takes type attitude. Uh, whether it's a large commercial job, a small domestic little project, hard-working tradies need the right products at the right time. Grimley goes above and beyond to deliver on the details. Grimley's always aims for the best solutions to your products. Go to grimleys.com.au for delivery that you can count on. So our guest, you just spoke of him, and of course he has joined us now, Andrew Westercott. Welcome to you, Andrew. Thanks, Brian. How's it lovely to see you? Yeah, nice to see you too. Nice now to meet I, you. I might need to drink, introduce Andrew to you, Harrison. He's uh, this is the man that has run the Grand Prix for uh, well, he's been there for seventeen odd years, yep. but he's run it as a CEO for the last thirteen or fourteen years. Just stepped aside, Andrew. Do you feel sort of relieved of? I won't say the burden because what a great job it has been. Uh, but the responsibility of delivering such a big event for Victoria. Yeah, it's a different it was a different change. Firstly, Harrison, look at that. Um, when you have 17 years at a Grand Prix, you lose all your hair. But you know, <laughs> a, long, a long lifetime career of, uh, of footy playing. Well, and he only just... works six months of the year and three days of those six months. So I... <laughs> you, you, must, you must speak to my wife and my mother because we run MotoGP for three days a year and Formula One for four. And they say, what do you do for the 300 and, uh, <laughs> yeah, 350 just... extra ones? But, it's, Brian, it's... Um, it's a different sort of thing. I mean, it's a 24-7 job. You'd go along in the off-season, in the lead-up, you'd finish the season and you'd rest and have a holiday and sort of physically recharge. But you'd always be thinking about the following uh, year and what you need to do at the event. Um, nowadays, I think of different things. But, uh, 
you know, I knew for a, a period of time that I was going to finish up after that, hand it over to the, a really great team. I didn't obviously know who was going to become in, in as a CEO, but the GMs and the staff, I mean, I was one of, you know, a couple of hundred staff at event time and there was about sort of 12,000 people who work across the event wow. um, every year. So so was I right, CEO for 13? Yeah, 13. And I started uh, as general manager of operations um, and I did that for about three and a half or four. So and who was that under? Who was the CEO then? Um a guy called Tim Bamford uh, right. is the one Tim who Bamford, uh, yes. has to uh, be accountable for appointing me. So <laughs> Tim was uh, he was there in the early days back in the 90s with um, Judith Griggs, who was the first yes, CEO, and, right. and Ron Walker. And then Tim recruited me and I came from the Commonwealth Games. So I yeah. moved from living the dream making pet food and uh, then got into Com Games and then became the GM of operations, which is sort of everything that was spending the money. And so the, the chairman that's worked hand in hand with you over the last few years has been Paul Little? Yeah, so it was great. I had uh, Paul for the last three or four years, John Harnden, who now runs Melbourne Olympic Park, and uh, at the start for five years was uh, Ron Walker. So wow. interesting, I had sort of the, apart from Martin Pakula, who's now stepped into the uh, into the fold, it was um, the three three chairs at the time and the, the three CEOs of Formula One at, so, at see, the time as well. See, there. They're some of the biggest names in Australian events. And then, as you say, you combine it with, say, Bernie Eccleston, who was the previous owner of Formula One. Um, uh, Kerry, what was his yeah, first Chase, name? Yeah, Chase. Chase Kerry the, the and Stefano. Be, best moustache in the world, Chase yeah. Kerry, and then Stefano Domenicali. What's it like dealing with these guys? Yeah, well, they're all interesting. They're all interesting people. They're experts in what they do. Bernie was someone who just created – he could see opportunities before anyone else saw them. He um, – he owned the Brabham racing team. He's Can you talk us through the background of F1 and, and the birth of it and Bernie himself and obviously Brian just said he sold it probably 20, 25 years ago or so? Yeah, he um, he created it. He saw there was an opportunity that there were all these teams that were a disparate mob and uh, no one was coordinated from a signage and a revenues point, point of view. And they didn't, point they of were view. just sort of grease monkeys underneath the bonnet yeah. of a car. So he got them all into overalls. He, he actually... Um, was the consummate salesman. He started off life, I think, as a motorcycle salesman and a car salesman, and he, he basically sold it to the teams and, it, and then to the FIA. He said, I can commercialise this. And he said, I'm going to make you rich and I'll give you all $10 million a year or £10 million or whatever it was, knowing that he was going to make £100 million a year. <laughs> they all thought it was a great deal. Bernie combined it all. He created the modern-day Formula One and then um, – over various machinations, it became owned by private private equity. So Bernie was the CEO in the last years before Liberty Media, the US company, bought it. Bernie was the CEO and his job was to make money for the, the private investment company that owned it. And um, his family holdings had shares as well. And then Liberty Media came in in 2017 and just built on his uh, foundation. That's when it all changed for me because as, as an F1 fan, you know, prior to Liberty coming in, in in the Eccleston days and even prior to that when they were running them out at uh, Calder Park and oh. Alan Jones was running around out there and in his in his car. But, like, it was a little, it was a little unfriendly. It was a little non-invitational to, to us, the public. And then all of a sudden... At the end of Bernie and into Carey's days, yep, yep. it just opened up hugely. Oh, it did, and it, it opened up with the uh, approach to to digital media and marketing and and social media. Bernie had this approach; everything was jealously um, about the protection of media yes, rights. Yes, he'd get money from promoter fees, media rights, and sponsorship. Right, and media rights back then was TV and print, and so therefore anyone coming along with a device 
and yeah. sort of filming it in a paddock. That was that was taboo. No, no. And yeah. he absolutely put the kibosh on that. And then Liberty came in, and I remember the first time a guy called Sean Bratches. He was the vice president of marketing and sales for ESPN for 27 years, and he'd never been to a Formula One event. And the first ever event he came to was Melbourne. Right. And we walked around, Sean and I, for a, a couple of hours and he looked at everything and took all these ideas. And the, um, the wonderful um, pat on the back for what we did in Melbourne was a lot of those ideas find their way into what Formula One now does around the world because they took it from being basically just motorsport to, to show showbiz and, and featuring the drivers. And, of course, behind that was something like um, Drive to Survive and yeah. going into China more and going to the US market more. Talk about that more in a moment, Drive to Survive, because that was critical uh, to bring a, a different group of uh, spectators to the sport. But just your role as the CEO of the Australian Grand Prix Corporation must be an incredibly difficult one because you have a number of bosses. You have, um, you have the, formula, the owners of Formula One. You have the Victorian government. Um, you have the FIA, which is a different body again. You have CAMS, yep. who run motor racing in Australia. The MotoGP as well. Yeah. Yep. Same there, thing, there are, yeah. There are so many different stakeholders in this business. Yeah. And How in do the, you please them all? And then the most important stakeholder is the, the fan who's buying the yeah. tickets. And they're buying tickets at the general admission level, the grandstand level, and uh, the corporate hospitality level. And it was a was a juggling act. And so you need- when the grandstand's not in the right spot, what do you say to them? Well, this is the thing. You 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 had – there was – there's no – it's not a whole 24-round 20, season with finals or anything like that. We had our grand final series um, four days one. of the event. You got yeah. one shot at it. You, you have. So what you had to do was make sure that that grandstand, especially in a park – Trees grow over twelve months, so yeah. you put a grandstand up at you know, you know um, the old turn thirteen before we remodel it, Brian, and you come along and you'd be looking down past Powerhouse and the lake towards yeah. the city. Well, a year later, you put the same grandstand up, and the bough of a tree is now killing three hundred seats, and the views of it. Right. You've got to get it right, so yeah. you've got to have a combination of engineering and project management, but you've also got to have the juggling of PR. You've got to be able to commercially liaise with Formula One. And the deals that Bernie would strike and not strike and so on were, you know, legendary. And of course, and getting him and our government to work hand in hand. Yeah, and then obviously making sure that the the taxpayers' money at the end of the day. It's very complex because yeah. you know you'd you'd make a financial outlay, um, but people see, and the only thing that was recorded was that financial outlay that the government was putting on the table. Let's say it was fifty million. And it's a lot of money, but if you're getting fifty million back via an investment that pays dividends in. Um, economic, branding, tourism, a whole industry, then it's a worthwhile investment. Mm. And that's what it was. And, and that I, happened, didn't it? I mean, rev- intake of revenue continued, I think you, you threefold on what when you started. Yeah, we is went that right. It yeah, took it from it 20 is, to 90 million or yeah, something. Yes, we did. And um, that was because ultimately we grew the sport beyond just the, the motorsport side of things. You needed to have entertainment and you need to provide value for the yeah. taxpayer. So there was a lot of things we do and did when it came to, you know, extra, extracurricular, you know, gr- growing the glamour side of things, growing schools programs, but, you know, getting sponsors involved who could then see a return on their investment by being associated with it. So, so, so what sort of thing, you know, you talk about improvement. The thing about me, whenever I, I went to the Grand Prix and I used to go every year, but I hadn't been for quite a time until you invited me very kindly uh, to your last Grand Prix last year, but it seemed to improve 
every year. Now they may be small things, but what, some of the some of the improvements that year by year you would make. Give, give us an idea of what an improvement is. What does it look like? Is it is it the track upgrade or is it something for spectators? What is it? It's it's everything because when you were mentioning that list before, every one of the stakeholders comes along for something different. You know, um, they wanted to get access to the fans, sorry, to the to the drivers. Right. They wanted better corporate facilities because in Melbourne we're blessed. You come along to, you know, the tennis or you go to the President's Cup or you go to a brand new facility at, at the G or maybe over at Optus Stadium in Perth and people would judge the corporate hospitality experience at the Grand Prix against permanent infrastructure. So, And so you're talking about things like a grid walk, for instance, where they can get close to the cars and the pits. Yeah, experience is one thing. But the, the biggest thing we did, which is um, was a trailblazer, is that Formula One drivers, you know, they're a cross between um, – you know, movie stars, playboys, rock stars, yeah. drivers and just sort of introverts or extroverts and they'd come along and they would get dropped off at the entrance to the Formula That's One paddock. Right. Yes. You'd go through the, the turnstiles, you'd you'd go in there and literally it was about 40 metres and they yeah. walked straight in, They'd Schumacher had waved to his fans and that was about it. That was it. And I was watching the, the Oscars and the red carpet and the mix zones and everything like that and the drivers have got to get close to the people. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, the only way we're going to do this is instead of dropping them off right at the turnstiles, make the buggers walk, walk 150 metres. Yeah, right. So we made them walk along this um, asphalt path, which has got gum trees. We called it the Melbourne Walk, and we dropped them off at a drop-off zone, and now that is our mix zone. Right. And Formula One fans, they race in. It's a 100-metre sprint from, well, it's probably about 400, but from the Gate 1 at Canterbury Road into the Melbourne Walk, and that's become the biggest um, selfie spot, photo spot, interview spot, and uh, it's been recreated around the world. So you just done, and they've done other things around the world. I've noticed about getting the fan and the driver closer together. For instance, they at the completion of a race, they will now stop at a certain corner and have the presentation rather than have it back at the you know the pits or whatever. Yeah, and that's again that theatre and um, and spectacle and showbiz side of things that Formula One do and, and love to innovate. And Stefano's very good with in innovation. I mean, you you went from Bernie who created it. You had then Chase Carey, Sean Bratches, and Ross Braun from a technical point of view. He needed to get the cars a lot more competitive, yeah. and that that was has been do improved. Do you think that's happened? I think there's more that can can be done, but it it happened and it was better. Um, and then now you've got Stefano and the showbiz side of things yeah. and um, that entertainment. But they're, they're pushing the boundary on everything. Some things I like, some things I think are probably a little bit naff and you don't want to do it. But that's they constantly innovate in Formula One and that's why winners are winners in Formula One and the losers are probably sacking their team bosses and drivers. Harrison, I've got a million questions. I know you're desperate to get in. Have you got something you wanted to speak to Andrew oh, about? Why are you just touching on levelling the playing field? For a casual fan, I don't know the specifics around how they change the formula every year or whatever they do. What are some of the things that they try to do each year to level the playing field? Because it seems like for the casual fan that Mercedes, Ferrari and those teams, Red Bull, win every year. Yeah, and it's um, the biggest thing, it's all about cash because the biggest teams, Harrison, have a budget of, you know, half a billion dollars. And the smallest team? Oh, maybe 100. Right. So five times the spend. But what happens is that Formula One and the way it's set up, at the end of the day, um, the financials and what's left on the table uh, um, after uh, satisfaction of shareholder requirements and all the rest of it, the prize money, you look at it, Tennis, they get a big check at the end of it. On the podium at Formula Ones, you get a trophy. Yeah. That's because the points are divvied up at the end of the year based on the constructors' results from the previous year. 
and the prize money is then divided up on success. So hang on. So the so the money generated by F1 goes into this big pool yep. and is then distributed at the end of the year according to where you finish. Yeah, and it's according to a very – there's a set of requirements which is quite confidential. It's under a thing called the Concord Agreement. You can find lots of machinations about that. Um, and then it's divided about that and then there's historic payments. Ferrari gets a historic fee. So it sounds like they've, what, for being famous? Because they're Ferrari. Right. It sounds and like the rich teams get richer. That's yes. exactly – you know, you said it in three words and I was rambling on for about two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but the rich rich get richer in Formula One. So you can make aerodynamic changes to make it easier to overtake and so on, but it comes down to the budgets and so on. And the thing that they've still got to get better is that the rich keep getting richer and the poor will be on struggle street. That's why you get the big three teams, you get the middle zone, and then you get two or three down the bottom who are just scrambling to get a point or two. And on that, and we speak more about the drivers and the cars and the teams, we we always speak about someone like Daniel Ricciardo, who's obviously Australian, and we, and we love him, and he's had some great success over his career. What's if, if you were to put someone who's a really good driver in the best car, does mm. that person become immediately more competitive? Yes, categorically. And the best the best example I can give was um, George Russell. Yes, young English guy, an yep. up and comer. Oscar Piastri will be the same. same. But George was racing for Williams, and this was in. COVID time and they had um, races at Bahrain and it was a double header to finish the season. Um, now, some of the experts might remember the actual nuances, but Lewis Hamilton got COVID. I think he'd already secured the championship or maybe uh, Max Max had, but either way, Lewis couldn't race and um, George Lord Russell man. went from Williams into Lewis's car. Immediately, great young driver. Guess what? I think he qualified on pole. He was a chance of winning the race, but the, the team botched up the pit stop. Yeah. So the answer is probably deliberately. Great drivers <laughs> need a great car. Um, and so I think- are you saying that Daniel Ricciardo, Alpha Tori at the moment? Yep. He, he he may in a year or two get the Red Bull seat that is vacated from Perez. If he did get that seat and they still had a great car, that he could go from the back of the grid to the front of the grid. Yes. Because he's good enough. Yeah, Perez. I mean, Sergio. Sergio was that sort of uh, situation. You look at Valtteri Bottas. I mean, his skills yes. haven't gone out the he's door, gone from and he the front was to the back. Yeah, and he's gone from uh, down, down to Alfa Romeo, and he was with uh, Lewis mm-hmm. in Mercedes, and he was winning lots of races. So you've got to have luck on your side, and uh, Daniel didn't have much of that. But Oscar Piastri, in the way McLaren turned it around in the second half of the year, he's an exciting young talent. So Oscar Piastri is in that category of great young driver. You know, I'll give yeah. it the facts speak for themselves. He won Formula 3 and Formula 2 back-to-back, and the only other two drivers who have done that are on the grid is um, Charles Leclerc and uh, George Russell. I stand correct. I think it's George Russell. But right. there's, there's only only two of them have gone F3 and F2, and now Oscar's won the Rookie of the Year. So if McLaren get it right, tell you what, in the first three races, Bahrain, uh, Jeddah, and then Melbourne – He'll be uh, he'll be top stuff. So we've got to we've got to have a look at what McLaren do in testing. But you, we, we can't put all the all the right, the drivers in the best cars. Like someone like Roman Grosjean, probably not suited to one of the better cars. <laughs> oh come on! Oh yeah, Romain Romain was a pretty good pretty good driver. But uh, then there's people who just um, are journeymen and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. You know, Hulkenberg was one of those sorts yeah, of people, yeah. and there's plenty along who. But what you need is that it's affordability. So. You know, if you've only got so much to spend on a driver, 
then what you also want to get is someone who's got a really, really good mind to help the engineers to try and develop and improve that. I yeah. I look at it, one of the one of the problems is you've got all these young guns in Formula 2, absolutely champing it a bit and getting Formula 1, and you've got some of the old stages Hold still on. getting mm. and holding what, on. What's, say, a top driver and, and, ask the same question. and, and, and not so a good driver? What do they earn? What, what's the difference? Well, um, the, we different, talking- the difference is the difference is the not so good drivers. A good example might be Nikita Mazepin, whose um, father was a, a massive fertilizer um, business owner in in Russia. He brings a massive sponsorship, Urukali, um, to the Haas team back in the day. Yeah, he's essentially paying for his drive, Brian. We saw that recently with who was the the <laughs> Russian guy that was sponsoring someone? I forget yeah. who it was. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So they, I, I don't know the intricacies, you know, but I do know that in Formula Two, you've got to be paying about a million and a half to two million euros to fund your drive. Right. So, so you've got to bring. Yeah, you've got to bring that. So, yeah. you know, Mick Doohan for, for Jack and other people who are um, – Jack Doohan, that is, yeah. who's a great young driver, finished third in F2. Yeah. It's cost a lot of money the higher you go up. Yeah. And, you know, the answer is probably that Lewis Hamilton and the guys are, you know, 50 to 100 million. It's probably in US dollars or uh, mm. euros. That's yeah. just for the racing contract. Yeah, and then there's lots of triggers yeah. in there. You know, you get points, you get fastest laps, you get yeah. podiums. Depending on where the team finishes um, in yep. the championship, and you're going to get deals. more. You get more, and then endorsement deals on yeah. top of that are yeah. absolutely massive. And the interesting thing is, there's the team sponsors. Then each individual driver has their own sponsors. Oh, okay. So have a look at their helmets, ah. and you get to see. Is that all they own? Um, Just the helmet? I think so, Brian. Right. I don't think I don't think they get any spot on right. the overalls or anything yeah. like that. But it's primarily. Their uh, their helmet oh, is like their Dan, own. Danny Ricks with Optus, but I don't think Optus is a sponsor of the team or the car. Is that right? Yeah. That's that's yeah. right. And yeah. then um, Oscar Piastri has Quadlock involved with him, and yeah. so on. So they'll have uh, they'll have their different alignment. So never been more popular Formula One. Never been more no. popular than it is right now. Uh, can we solely put that on Drive to Survive? And I give one very close example. My wife. Yep. Uh, was not a Formula One watcher. In fact, couldn't stand it. All of a sudden, she watches Drive to Survive. She grows to like the, the sex and the fashion and the the glitz that goes with it all. Is is this why? I think globally the answer is yes, um, but also then coupled with that, Formula One have made these drivers uh, a lot more focused. And you know, you look at it and you got cut. They're, they're, a lot more accessible, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, and they you know used to be all the photos would be the drivers in a helmet. Now they're good-looking young roosters. You yeah. get Carlos Sainz and you George Russell's a smart young yeah. man, and and Oscar's got his own style. He's a handsome yeah. young Aussie, and all of them now are appealing to the fans. But and, and do all of the women wish they were? I think they, in the back of their minds, they wish they were there as one of the partners of one of the drivers and what that life would be like. Oh, they do. But the, the other thing is, when you come along to to Melbourne, and it's a great example. It's it's cool. There's a there's a lifestyle and there's a fashion yeah. associated with Formula One, there and it's uh, we. And this is one of the things we had to do. We have to cater for everyone from billionaires to backpackers. So, uh, and uh, that's that's part of the appeal. And any stories we... there? Like that, that would be amazing. So, a billionaire owner or something. How far do you go? Is it just purely at the track, or is it booking their hotel for them? No, we we didn't have to do that in the same way that uh, Australian Open has to do it for the players. The teams look after that. So we right. we essentially 
Um, we being all the past group, the Australian Grand Prix Corporation has to get the venue ready, deliver the obligations in the contract with Formula One and then indirectly with the FIA to meet all the specifications, everything from media centres and data to security and the track and so on. But beyond that, the teams look after their entourages of 100 to 350. But you know the date that a Grand Prix is going to be run in 2026, right? You probably know that already. You've uh, got to book the pre – doesn't someone have to pre-book the hotel? So they they book better? all the hotels. But the interesting thing is Formula One is probably 12, 12 to 18 months out. But these days it's a real juggling act because there's now 23 or 24 races. The contract with Formula One and the FIA has up to – and the and the um, broadcasters, up to 25 races a year. So we might know that will be a March event, but we no, won't necessarily know whether it's the, you know, the, the 25th, the 18th or the 11th. And then we'll work with Formula One and there'll be a bit of juggling and saying, okay, well, because of Ramadan, they're going to go into Bahrain first and Melbourne will be third. And um, I coveted the, the first race all the time back in the days with Ron Walker but I think but my, now. But one of my points is, so Ferrari bring two hundred people with them, right? Yep, that's a big hotel they need. Yeah. So how do they know that that hotel can cater for their two hundred? How do you know to get that date before anyone else books it? Because ultimately, the dates are um, populated amongst the teams is one of the key things. They've got to right. sign off on not only the easy ones when they're going to Melbourne and they'll put um, dibs on the hotel where they always stay for fifteen years. Yeah. But the other thing they've got to sign off on whether they're going to do a triple header. And how many triple headers? Because the the season, not only it's a driver management, but also there's 300 people. You've got to actually manage the ability for all those people to actually roster at every one of the events. So now what they're getting, I mean, yeah, Christian Horner and, uh, you know, Zach Brown and the guys, the team bosses, will be at every time. But behind the scenes, there's a few others who will, will alternate. This might seem like a dumb question. The cars, are they flown over or shipped? No, they're fl- they're oh, flowing, and flying. they used to. Gibson yeah, Freight but they u- yeah, yeah, they um they used to come over, completely assembled as a car with the axles, and they had these little dicky little wheels on them. Drive off the plane. But now they are completely disassembled. So right. there's um there's about seven or eight hundred tons of uh, freight. The wow. stuff that is non um, technical sensitive, let's say the marketing paraphernalia or the um, the coffee advertising machine. hoardings and the coffee machines, coffee. there's there's three or four. No, the, the Italians, I tell you, <laughs> Ferrari, they bring their own coffee machines. I know that girl that started Ferrari. She was purely the barista. And yeah. she, I think she's now in PR with them. She's moved yeah. up. You bet. I oh, know. The stuff that, you know, that's important but it's non-time sensitive, they have three or four. So there's another couple of hundred ocean freight containers that go around and they'll leapfrog. So there'll be four routine. So yeah. you'll start off in round one and that will be Jeddah and then that goes straight away to round four, which could be yeah, Miami. Right. And the stuff that's in Melbourne might then go to yeah. Catalonia. Yeah. So that time sensitive stuff is going on ocean freight, although gee, with ocean freight delays and everything like that, you've got to make sure it's going to get here on time. Um, but logistics and the behind the scenes stuff, and that's why people talk about Melbourne doing a bloody good job globally is because it's the whole supply chain. You mentioned people like Gibson Freight. It's all the all the suppliers that we have, and we work with and nurture and innovate. We have to do that. And I mean, that's the that's the sort of the business side of it. It's nice to go along and meet people in the the paddock and give your old man Harrison a, a tour and stuff like that. But at Does, the end of the day, tell me this: when the Grand Prix comes around, 
Essendon Airport and Tulla, are they absolutely chock-a-block with private planes? Are they flying private or are they flying, to, you know, on, most, on well most of the Most of the team people will fly um, on commercial. Will they? But, but at the higher ends of management in those, they'll – So Toto Wolf is he – Toto, com- he'll, come in, he'll come in a jet with, um, you know, Bradley Lloyd, his comms person um, – uh, Susie, his wife, uh, Lewis, he might be on the plane with or not. So there'll be jets and they go out to Melbourne Jet Base and stuff like that. Right. Like um, my son and I uh, went over and had a had a sports trip to LA and, and Vegas and you should have seen the car parking lot at the Vegas airport, Brian. I mean, yeah. that was just wow. Jet City. That was, uh, really? that was like Chadston on a Saturday morning with – with planes <laughs> and, and expensive planes. Well, so just one thing on Toto Wolf, I mentioned him. He seems to have taken, I won't say a backseat, but he's not He's 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 not as happy anymore or he's just sitting back a bit. He's not as forward as he was. Am I imagining that or? No, and uh, I'll tell you what's going to be interesting when the next season of Drive to Survive comes out. You know, if you're not getting points, you're not getting money. Right. And he's got uh, incentives and short and long-term incentives and uh, the shareholders uh, at Daimler. Guess what? If you're not winning, and Christian Horner, why is Christian Horner looking as happy as he ever yeah. is? You know, it's because Mercedes is getting towed by Max yeah. Verstappen and the guys at the oh. moment. So uh, that's uh, that's real stuff. And then someone in in um, favour with all the all the Drive to Survive fans was was Gunter Steiner. Well, Gunter at the end of the yeah, day, got the flick. he got the flick because he's not getting results in Haas. Yeah, wow. So you know, it's it's cutthroat. And it's cutthroat um, and a merry-go-round. And you've got to you've got to perform, and you've got to perform. You know, on the day and in the lead-up. It's fair to, to say. You mentioned Haas. Sorry, Harrison. You mentioned Haas, but it's not just one race in a Formula One race, is it? it there's three or four races going on because Haas is not competing against um, Red Bull. They're competing against AlphaTauri, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, and. And therefore, you've got to be scrambling to get your points because you can go down the pecking order very, very quickly. I mean, Williams was uh, Williams was the door, and they were the pin-up boys of it. McLaren has won um, second number of best number of races here in Melbourne, uh, and uh, you know, if you're not winning, you can soon drop to third, fourth, or fifth in the pecking order, and that means less money. So, see, one of the big standout things for me is that um, you know, in footy, in my world. The, the broadcasters want the, the best teams on in the best slots. And they don't really want to show the bottom teams. They're not really interested in them. In Formula One, I think the commentators do a great job in creating a, um, a, a theme around those that aren't necessarily at the front of the grid as well. Is mm. that something that they're told to do? because otherwise they don't get the commercial backing into those lower teams. They seem to get almost equal billing to what the top teams get in terms of exposure. Yeah, it equal billing's probably a push, but you, there's no doubt that um, you know Sky Sports is a commercial business as well, and they know that if they make mentions and give the coverage of the stouches that's happening in the midfield, and sometimes the racing stouches there are actually – more interesting than Max getting out by 17 seconds and stuff like that. So yeah. there's, there is a reality that you want to make sure that you're, you're getting that. Whether they're directly told to do that, I think they're just smart enough to realise that every one of these drivers. The other thing is, interestingly, is they're 11, 12 or 13 nationalities. So you want to be appealing to the broadcast. I mean, I, when I'm watching it, well, I just don't want to – I want to actually see Oscar – and Daniel well, well, and what I, they're doing. Well, I just wonder. You said you know Max gets out to seventeen second lead. 
And you know what I'm doing? If I'm a director in the in the box, I'm I'm switching off Max because that is now boring. Yes. So Red Bull not getting exposure. I'm going back to a fight for third, fourth, and fifth or something. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think it's ever happened in Formula One where the bosses have said, Max, you need to bring it back a bit. You need to bring it back within five or ten seconds of the leaders because otherwise we're not getting the exposure that we we would otherwise want. Well, I re- I reckon. Um I reckon those sorts of commercial realities probably come into it a bit, and then they hog the limelight when it comes onto the podium and uh, yeah. and and the press things post post race. So there's a bit of balance. I would suggest that um, Red Bull's got enough trans- visibility now in Formula okay. One that that wouldn't happen. But Brian, the um, the whole thing comes around brands. You talked about we talked about billionaires before. One of them, when the, one of the great stories was about Ross Braun. Honda had all the money in the world and were in, they had a, a team and then it was 2009 or 2010, Ross Braun took it over, became Braun GP, had yes. Rubens Barrichello, Jensen Button, first race was in Melbourne and they dominated the whole thing. And lo and behold, who's in here but Richard Branson because Virgin was a sponsor of that. So he'd flown in just for the weekend, gets his mug in the, uh, in the photos in the paddock and all the rest of it and the rest is history. Braun won it. I think it's actually um, – a a doco now on telly, but I'd love to see it because that was just one of those sensational minnow things yeah. that Honda invested all this money, Harrison, couldn't make it work, but Ross Braun was a technical mind and genius behind uh, Michael Schumacher's victories, right. and he knew what he needed to do to make that car go fast. Harrison, yeah. I know you're not getting much of a, a chance Yeah, well, no, you're, you're uh, licking I, your I, lips. I've, this I've is good. Another, I've you're got engaged. another question. Well, I'm going, Harrison, then you just push me out of the way, please. Um, Andrew. I'm really intrigued um, on the setup. Let's just take the Melbourne Grand Prix, which you run. So the paddock. I, say, I ran. I ran. Yes. Travis and the boys ran yes. now. Yeah, of course. Travis will, will do a great job, I'm sure, and comes from good stock. Um, the paddock. So this is where everyone wants a pass to the paddock. Um, they are the toughest passes in world sport to get hold of. How many people. Once you're in the paddock, then are there separate zones from there, like pit lane? And how many people get what passes in in these areas? Yeah, the the paddock is this um, technical term. It's a bit like sort of the mounting yard if you're a yeah. horse racing fan. I don't know what it's called. It's probably in, you know, um, it's the, you know, behind it. It's the change rooms. There. It's the, change, the rooms. It's the, it's the yeah. rooms. It's the rooms at um, footy games and so on. But it's the paddock. Now the paddock is the area behind. The pits. So you've got the paddock, the garage, and then the pits where the cars are and pit lane and they go out in the track. And this is where the teams do their business. They have their engineers. They have their technical people. They have their lunch. Yep. Um, with their caterers, Harrison. Lunch yes. is important. Coming out. And, um, How many people in the paddock? Probably, well, if you look at it, there's probably, um, given all the teams, there'd probably be 2,500. How many people in pit lane would get a pass? Oh, the ones who get passes beyond all the teams and so on, you might get uh, 100 to 200 yeah, per it's per, a, it's per race. Well, we know Andrew Westercott, so we can probably get some now. No, and, well, what we do is we had a, we, we did have a group of pool passes because this is where that part of that growth was. And this is one of the things that we had to beg, borrow, uh, yeah. didn't steal, but beg and borrow every year with Bernie. I said, we've got to grow the sport. You've got to get the – into the social pages and getting and, the people, mm. you know, whether it's footy and yeah. unashamedly the Bulldogs boys would probably get a few things. But one year I did the right thing by the Melbourne guys and the yeah. premiership team See, came through the Harrison, paddock. But- what happens about this paddock and the pit lane area, the paddock, effectively 
the way that I see it is it, it almost becomes another country. It becomes a foreign piece of land that is yep. extremely hard to get into, controlled by the FIA because of um, uh, um, risk and all of yep. that sort of thing because there's a lot of tools and tyres oh, and pit lane. And you, you know, it's a dangerous spot. Dangerous spot. So it, it really becomes it's, – it's like a little country, isn't it? It's fenced off like a little country and guarded like that. It sure is, and there's been plenty of uh, VIPs who've thought that they were way too important to abide by the Formula One rules. Any names? Um, <laughs> no, but they were generally, you know, rock stars and stuff like that and, and you know, ambassadors to yeah. other foreign countries, and they'd have this security detail of three or four people who were obliged to be next to the ambassador. No entourage is here, But guess what? Formula One would say, you don't come out onto our grid, um, you stand here, and oh, but I have to, sorry, then – the ambassador doesn't go out in the grid. The ambassador says, I'll be right, guys, and he would walk See, out in the is, grid. See, this is what I love about Martin Brundle when he does his grid walk, which I, I, I try and <laughs> emulate in some way, shape or form with what I do after the game, is that he walks out there and Tom Cruise is on the grid and yeah. and Tom all of a sudden hasn't got a bodyguard or anyone around him to Correct. protect him, so Martin's able to go up and go bang and yeah. Tom doesn't know what to do or say, does he? Yeah, that was, there was a funny story. I'll bring the footy and uh, footy and uh, Formula One side together. So... Um, the dogs, doggies guys were out on the grid in 2022. Was, I know that because it was the first one after COVID. So uh, Marcus Bontempelli and Bailey Smith were out there. And, you know, Marcus is an aficionado of Formula One. He knows it inside out. Uh, Baz, Does he really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just uh, an absolute fan. There was him and Josh Dunkley who I, don't, I can't remember who Josh. He moved up north somewhere to play yeah, with Brisbane. someone. and. Yep. I knew that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, they'd come along, and so the boys would play simulators and go to Grand Prix over, events over the world. Um, Baz was was new to it. Anyway, he's looking around and stuff like that, and got a photo. And Christian Horner, of all people, comes up to Bailey and says, "You're the guy on the billboard outside my my hotel." <laughs> <laughs> so no Bailey Bailey didn't know who Christian Horner was. Oh, I think no. he had to say to Marcus, "Hey, hey, Bond, who was that bloke?" He said, "Oh." What do you mean? You don't know Christian Horner. He's married to a pussycat doll and yeah. is the boss of the Red Bull team. That's so right. once you get on to that grid, you get transfixed. And it's great because there's so many sportsmen and women around the world who love Formula One. Um, but equally, the drivers like uh, Daniel and Oscar, they're happy just meeting you know the footy players or yep. Daniel loves Zach Bryan and Oscar loves his Richmond footy players. And now he's becoming great mates with the Australian cricket team. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, there's this sort of... Um, Bromance between sports people, as you'd know, and that's the exciting part. And what we needed to do all the time in terms of innovation was just make dreams come true, surprise and delight. And so we'd have these different experiences so that key stakeholders, sponsors, and the public could get closer to the drivers. We've introduced track truck tours and all the rest of it yeah. around, the, around the track. So a lot of fun. You were talking before about going on tour. Surely there's a few good perks with a job being – You've, you've got to, in inverted commas, visit a few of the other GPs. Yeah, got to got to is right, and you do, because in any business you've got to have relationships. Got to get better too. You've got to work with Formula One, you've got to work with the FIA, and you've got to be able to then know all the teams, people, so that you can get PR and marketing opportunities that promote Melbourne. Um, I was always asked, Harrison, did I go to form every Formula One and MotoGP event around the world? I mean, spending the taxpayers' money, that would have mean I was going to about <laughs> 45 events and I would never have been in, in Melbourne. So the answer was we selectively went to about one or two to really pick the eyes always out. Always different ones? Always different ones. Yep. Um, and uh, you'd combine them with a MotoGP and an F1 event wherever you could 
and then you'd get the eye, pick the eyes out of the great ideas, steal these wonderful ideas, modify them, innovate, and and implement them in Melbourne, or reaffirm that what we were doing Things was right. right. Yeah. But the other thing that, um, even from the Bernie days, Brian was uh, they'd um, say that other. Oh no, you guys are way behind the eight ball. No, Silverstone does it the best, or something like that. Or no, no one else does that. And you'd go along and you'd dispel these myths because the minute you started talking to other promoters and it's actually seeing what was happening at the events around the world, you could validate that says, no, no we're, we're on the right path. So no, I, it was, I think we do sport generally and particularly the Grand Prix better than anyone in the world. Yeah, and the tennis, uh, yeah. the tennis is an example yeah, of that. And li- live sport, you know, especially, yeah. uh, especially bringing the fans. And that was one of the things we had to do is we had to provide value for money. Um, and if you didn't have a good experience, you and your mates would come along saying, Bugger that, I'm not going to go to the Grand Prix next year. It was crap. Other than Melbourne, which is the best? Uh, in, obviously, yeah. it might have changed over the years. I never went to Mexico, but that's a, a cracker. Austin, Texas is another one I never went to, but they're good. Singapore does a great night race. If you're an aficionado, um, you go to Italy and you see Monza, but the facilities and everything at Monza, it's unless you're in the paddock. It's out of town but, too. It's, it's miles um, out. It's not a great fan experience, but you go there for the sort of the Italian culture yeah. and everything. Silverstone does a wonderful job. The opulence at the absolute high end of the spectrum is, you know, Bahrain, Jeddah in Saudi Arabia and, and Abu Dhabi. Got no people but, though. But no, for, no, no they spectators. Don't. You we haven't get, mentioned Monaco. Never went there for a race. Um, boring, Harrison. And boring. Boring, you know. And, and Harrison, what I'd say is that we're, um, we're absolutely – on the podium in one, two or three in terms of customer experience, fan yeah. experience and the best event. That comes from, yeah, you know, incredible. Bernie, yeah. Stefano and and Chase saying that and also the feedback unsolicited from the teams and the media and just everyone associated with the supply chain. And plus, we need 130,000. We'll get 130,000 on race day, which is more than the crowd that they'll get for a whole event in some of those mm. ones where it's more geared around high end and, and just the broadcast. You know, I imagine one of the down moments was COVID, the COVID period. So all of a sudden, you know, we're Grand Prix, it's been sold, you know, Thursday's getting closer and closer and, you know, we, at the Grand Prix, we actually opened the gates on this Thursday. Tell us about this how- This is the, March 2020. Yeah. So it's all happening. Yeah. Oh, what happened? How did it happen? Well, it was the lead up. Remember, uh, we all heard about this thing called coronavirus and you'd send those memes and you'd laugh about, oh, I had coronavirus because there's a, there's a photo with a slab of beer and all the rest of it. And um, then it got bigger and bigger and the epicentre tended to be in, in Italy initially. And so the Ferrari, Pirelli, Alpha Tauri, they were really worried and we were just going on with life. And best example was MCG on the Sunday before our event, 85,000 at the G for the ICC Women's T20 World Cup. So four or five days before we're due to have our first run on a Thursday. Yes. We opened the gates for Thursday and people are saying – you know, what's happening? Are you being How many reckless? are you expecting on the Thursday? Oh, we had 45,000 on the Thursday. And then Lewis comes out and says, well, why are we even doing this? But Australia was a completely different environment. Yeah. But then in parallel, what was happening, there was increasing levels of community transmission. And at the same time, there were levels of transmission that was existing within the, the Formula One group. But Formula One had a situation that they introduced later on. If you didn't have a negative test, you couldn't get into that paddock. But precautionary they are always about business continuity, backups. You know, you're going to have a backup plan. You're going to have a contingency plan right. in the race. People would be a little bit snuffly after a long-haul flight. They'd go to the doc and the doc would say, oh, you get a COVID test, but you'll be all right, young Joe. Um, 
Anyway, there were eight or nine tests that were going on and they all came back negative and there was the community transmission that the health officer and government was advising us on. And um, so we had Thursday that happened, Friday morning, gates ready to open, but on the Wednesday, there'd been some tests put in and on the Thursday night, um, eight of the results came back, eight out of nine results, all negative. And I said to my guys, yeah, but where's the ninth test? Yeah. Oh, we haven't got that one back, and I was, oh, oh. I smell, I smell a rat. You, yeah. you, you know, you'd be saying, okay, something, something's not happening here. Yeah. Look what's happening down on the bench. Um, anyway, mm. at the same time, though, community transmissions and the work that was happening, and basically spectator safety was happening in parallel. Thursday night at about eight thirty, I'm at the um, governor's residence for the official welcome. We got a call that said. McLaren um, mechanic has tested positive. So Formula One and what they were responsible for, they went off to the hotels and met and met way into the depth of the night. And at the same time, we are having, which is the most important thing from a community safety point of view, discussions with the government. And it all came to a head on the Friday morning, Friday the 13th, and ultimately there were two parallel decisions. One was Formula One wasn't able to race. Now, we run a big enough show. Let's say Formula One couldn't race, but everything else was A-OK, we could have proceeded. But the overriding decision also at the same time was the increasing numbers in the community. So why didn't they stop the community coming and let them race? That that would mean only... You know, a few thousand people would be there, in, over spread over what? How many acres is that? Yeah, 100, 180 acres because Formula One had decided this was such rarefied earth in terms of decision-making. They didn't know why or what was going to happen and was it fair? In a, in a world, you were talking about Toto and, and Christian and Gunter and all, you know, going uh, hammer and tongs at one another. They decided that um, – gee, this is uncharted waters, McLaren cannot race because of this thing called COVID. So Formula One said we cannot go ahead with Formula One. Now, we could have gone ahead with supercars, Porsche Carrera Cup, all the other things, a huge amount of corporate hospitality and run a racing event, a bit like sort of a supercars event in Adelaide or something. But um, the community side of things was that every activity was stopped. So – Shutters went up, and I, I've never been. That was the sport first oh. major sporting event or event to be cancelled from yeah, COVID in the it world. Was. Harrison, I uh, I hope you never left at the altar and jilted and stuff like that. But um, and I've been happily married for thirty years, yeah. but I felt it was uh, it would have been like being jilted at the altar. We stood there, we had the venue looking as good as it was wow. ever going to look, and Formula One pulled the pin, and we weren't able to run because of the the very strict. And necessary government All those health contractors of the build. Who oh. takes the the funds and the loss of that? Well, it's interesting because guess what? The people who built the track and dismantled it, they did their job. Yes, expect hmm. to get paid. Yeah, yeah the grandstand, every do. grandstand seat, yeah. everyone expected to pay. And then, so it's much more difficult to contractually unwind an event that's cancelled because you think about the caterers. This is one of the yeah, unintended consequences. We had, you know. 50 containers of beer and food um, that were all spread out around Albert Park and normally all the beer containers are empty. Yeah. Guess what? They're all full with <laughs> beer and every fridge in every facility has beer that's already taken out of the boxes. Now, all of that needs additional labour because it's normally consumed across a four-day weekend. So the wrap-up of all the, the bottom line was that the government footed the bill and it was a $37 million 
um, bill that seems that was um, small that was uh, had to pay. We didn't have to pay fees to Formula One, um, and uh, you know it was a it was a tough time. But what was tougher was the next couple of years because we had five other false starts, and that was horrendous because we had people uh, working. We had MotoGP that was cancelled. We had um, events for Formula One that was cancelled. So that was probably the biggest one when we came out of it and. Uh, and um, then we delivered 2022 with a record crowd for the uh, the biggest Formula One crowd in history, yeah. 419,000. And then we had 444 in 2023. Made it all worthwhile. Yeah. Feels like it's starting to build again. It's yeah. going to be bigger than Ben Hur. Um, we can't forget how we're we going for time, Harrison. We yeah, we've got to answer yeah, for a couple good. more minutes. Just want to ask about the MotoGP because. I know we've had, um, you know, Weber and Ricardo and Alan Jones and Brabham yep. who have all been, uh, some have been super successful, Brabham three uh, three world championships, I think Jones yes. won. Um, but motorbikes, GP, like Doohan, Gardner, I went to the first one in 87, I think it was. I watched that on telly. That would have been I was there. there. I was there. That was unbelievable. I was a big 500cc uh, oh, fan. He was incredible. Stoner was incredible. Yeah. Oh. Casey Stoner won um, six times in a row yeah. down at Phillip Did Island. Did he win six in a in row? In a row, yeah. Valentino won six as well down there. And in case he won the world championships in 2007 and 2011, the best. He's the ballsiest rider we've ever had, Casey Stone. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you'd probably say Mick Doohan might, uh, might argue that. I mean, See, Kate... I, I put it, I classify it this way. I look at Wayne Gardner's one world title in 87. Yep. And then I look at Doohan's five, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, 94 and, to 98. And tell me how many Stone won. Two, two. 2007, 2011. I actually, I actually put more emphasis on Gardner's one. And I say that's yep. equal to Doohan's two or three. I'll tell you why. Because when Wayne Gardner raced, there were six or seven other world champions in the field at the time. The depth was enormous. Kevin Swantz, Wayne oh, yeah. Rainey, yep. all of these guys. Whereas when Doohan took over, I won't say it was weak, but all those guys had retired and it was waiting for the new lot to come through. Jeez, Jeez. Wayne, Wayne Gardner written your script. That's uh, that's exactly I, what uh, you two are. I'm, I'm just sitting in the corner here watching you two well, look longingly into each other's eyes about MotoGP. Are you guys all right? Harrison, I'm going to say something. You, you, you're a similar age to my son, Charlie. Charlie loves his NBA, NFL and, and US, US, US sports. So does he. So do I. Um, and we had a ball. We went over and saw some uh, – uh, an NFL game at SoFi Stadium. But I'll tell you what, one event you have to put on your bucket list is go down to Phillip Island, as the old yeah. man would say. Yeah. It is the best viewing track in the world. It is. And you can see, see MotoGP. Let's go this year. And they're going 350 down the main straight, coming into turn one. They are the most courageous sportsmen in the world, without doubt. Yeah. And it is unbelievable. So MotoGP. I'd never been down to the Phillip Island circuit until I started working there at the Grand Prix Corporation in 2006, and it is just a sensational event. You just go down there and you you say, I'm hooked, because the adrenaline and the noise and the sound of it, and the, you know, you have arguments about whether Valentino Rossi is better than Casey Stoner and better than Mick Dewan and all the rest of it, and then you've got Marquez. I don't think the guys now are up to those same standards, but it I is I think Marquez is, but he just, oh, Marquez, he just hasn't had a good run. Yeah, and maybe you know Bagnaia and stuff uh, yeah. now, but um, there's romance. There's you know the Ducatis of the Italians are there, but you get the big um, Japanese companies. Um, we've got a young Aussie. Well, he's not so young anymore. Jack Miller from Townsville, who's a knockabout, fantastic young rider, um, has his wins. 
but um, you know he's got to uh, he's moved on to a new bike called KTM. All of this is great, but your biggest challenge now is you're on the board of the Western Bulldogs, um, and uh, you've got to try and find another premiership in this period because they've got a they've got a good team. Well, we've got a great team. We've got um, you know brand new investment in facilities out at the club because it's a bit like I mean the analogies analogies um, that uh, between Formula One and and Aussie rules. I think are probably uh, like any sport. You know, you're getting down to. One percent, two percent is one percent, half a percent is, and you you don't just get everything right just by luck. You've got to have um, fantastic administration. You've got to have the right facilities. The new investment out there is great. Um, we've got we've well, got the talk- best player in the comp. Yeah, and uh, we've got a great team and a great list. And guess what? Um, new season, we're all going to be talking it up. Are um, you surprised that Bonapelli hasn't won a Brownlow yet? Yeah, I'm disappointed. I am. Um, I'm disappointed that he he didn't. But uh, you tell you what, if they, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda, there's plenty of people who missed out. Grandy, um, Das, and stuff like that from a dog's point of view. But that doesn't change how good a player is. Marcus isn't a great captain and leader for the club. I think the key thing is going to be that we've got a great list, we've got a great opportunity, um, and time's going to tell this season. Speaking of facilities, dogs got new ones, which is great. So have the so have the F ones. Got a new. HQ in Vegas. They they spent a couple hundred million building a new headquarters for Formula One. Is that right? Uh, well, they're building no, they're building a new paddock uh, paddock club. I don't know that there's oh. a new headquarters. Oh, oh, I mean, new headquarters. Liberty Liberty's in. They I stand corrected. Liberty's headquartered in in New York. Stefano and the whole okay. team are based out of London. They've got a tech center in. Okay, uh, so first Grand Prix in Vegas. Um, Carlos Sainz Ferrari flying oh. along at 320 kilometres an hour goes oh. over a, a steel manhole cover. We've all seen them in the middle of the city. It's it oh. creates such a vacuous um, environment under the car that it yep. sucks. Yes, the the IO up and it hits the bottom of the car. Could have killed him. You could have done some super damage if he wasn't in one of those canisters that they're in. Wow. Yeah. Um, What's your question? Well, my, no, my it's, a bloody, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, just a bloody say. Wow, I'll tell you what. This has never happened before yeah. in Formula 1, anything like this. And, of course, it, it put the whole Grand Prix in threat because they had to work out how to nail these down yeah, in and a few hours. You've got, and, a, and it's not a surprise because Mono, any time you have a street race, Monaco's a great example. Every they, they will, You have Do you know to what we're talking about, Harrison? Manhole covers. Yeah, so you can fit a man yeah. down them. They're yeah. in the middle of the road. This They're one, about- as, you, as you said, a little bit. This is I. This is probably about six inch diameter. Yeah, this little yeah. one. But what happens is that this the downforce created aerodynamically by a Formula One car, they could drive upside down. They suck that yeah. that much. Yeah. They suck to the road. So anything underneath them, they suck up, and the manhole cover came up. And hit the bottom of the car and caused a thunderous bolt in the bottom of Carlos Sainz's car. The the carbon fibre monocoque of the driver cockpit must be two and a half inches thick. This pierced that monocoque. Yeah. And, did and remember that carbon un- fibre canister that the driver lies in, he lies down in, is only 50 mil above ground level. Yeah. And so it nearly hit him in the bum. Yeah. And then... All of them said this is no good. I was chatting to Daniel Ricciardo um, pre-Christmas and uh, he said, driving down the main straight, he said, I just I just took a different line. I didn't want to drive over yeah. another one of those IOs and all the rest of it. Now, this is the sort of attention de- to detail you had because that was 
a really, really poor start to the Vegas Grand Prix. And you've got to dot the I's and cross the T's in everything you do, from backup power supplies to uninterruptible power supplies to, you know, contingency planning for yeah. weather, for wind, you name ha- it. And ha- that was an example where Harrison, they botched it. To give you an idea, go back to Alan Jones when he won in 1980. The, the, they had skirts on these Formula One cars and they actually had rubber moulds on the bottom of them. They were actually touching the ground. So the whole car was sealed. So it created a, a positive environment where there was no air coming from outside. So it was completely like a – the way to describe it would be like a Scarlectric car being with a magnet to the track. It was like that. And they had to yep. lift the skirts to allow air under so that they weren't getting around the corners too quick, yeah? Yep. And then this is the balance that you can have – straight line speed or you can have cornering yes. speed and you can have overtaking capability with the arrows. And one of, yeah. one of the best things, and this is where it comes down to any sporting um, event and whether it's technical or broadcast, out on the grid, Adrian Newey is now the new Ross Braun. He's the guru of aerodynamics for Red Bull. When they're out on the grid and the two Red Bull cars are there, is Adrian Newey looking at their cars? No. He's walking around with a clipboard and a notebook and looking at every other car on the grid, saying, oh, that little widget's an interesting one. I didn't see that last week. And then they'd pay attention to it and they'd focus on, well, why are they doing that? That might explain them getting, you know, a tenth of a second quicker in corners and so on, and you steal ideas shamelessly from all the other teams. And that's the sort of stuff that every football club's got to do and, you know. Harrison, this is fascinating. We could go on forever, but we can't. This is why I wanted to get Andrew on. Um, I know um, Travis Old is going to have a sensational job doing what Andrew has done for 17 years, basically, but... Um, this is why the sport's interesting. There's so many components to it. It is. It is. And the glamour side's being dialed up. But at yeah. the end of the day, it's sport. And you look at the intensity and the rivalry of those sporting um, sporting challenges on the track, that's the one thing that Formula One's still got to get better at because yeah. no one wants to see yeah. Verstappen out the front. You want to see proper overtaking back in the, like in the, in the Jonesy days and yep. MotoGP days. 17 years. Well done. Congratulations. It's been a big job for you. Before we do wrap up, we yep. do need to look after our sponsors, Grimley's. Um, Grimley's are the number one fasteners, um, supplier of construction supplies in Melbourne. Yep. Um, they Their protocol, their motto is that they go above and beyond. When has someone in your life, professional or personal, gone above and beyond? Oh, this is a question that normally needs think time, and that's what I'm giving you right now. So above and beyond. Uh, for me, it's my wife. She does it every day for me. But uh, what about you? Well, coming from as – a, as a chemical engineer, um, I love – Are you a chemical, chemical engineer? engineer? Yeah. Jesus, you're what, a genius. No you're talking so specific about <laughs> engineering. So that's why I'm, I'm going to look up Grimley's. And, uh, you know, I would say everyone at the Grand Prix – I mean, this is the ethos. You had to have continuous improvement. So I won't single out any one individual. But So there were no hours with, with employees. They just had to work. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, normal yeah. normal employment contract. But what they do is because you get this pride and passion associated with the event and you, you we had the ability that family and friends could come along and stuff and everyone wanted – I wanted everyone to be proud of the mm. achievements that they had in their particular area, whether it was – you know, the reception in the media centre or you were looking after credentials collections or the food and bar catering or you introduced new paddock arrangements for supercars or Formula 2 or Formula 3. So we would go above and beyond. There was a, a guy called Matt Walton. He would say, um, I want to introduce my special little bit of lemon zest. So, um, you know, 
Grimley's above and beyond is what you've got to do to get better. And so, you know, I'll say the, the dogs will go above and beyond and everyone's got to just strive to get that um, extra little bit of percent. Yep, so there you go. Andrew Westcott, the former CEO of the Australian Grand Prix Corporation. It has been intriguing. Thank you for giving us your time. Very exciting. Uh, great to chat, PT. Cool. Go to grimleys.com.au for delivery. You can count on. Before we do wrap up, have you got you guys have got a just a water there? Was that – what's – what? What? How are you holding that water? Is that a, a bottle? Yeah, reusable bottle. bottle. We, we were talking earlier about sustainability and keeping the environment safe, and you're talking about your house and your eco life. Is that? Re- What's this one? Oh, uh, oh, he's got the uh, yes, the, the Patagonia. multiple usable uh, vessel container. That, well, so there you go. Big deal. Is, how do you know I'm not going to? Andrew and I aren't going to use this multiple times. Well, you could do. I hope I you was, do. I was just given this by you. you. Yeah. Yo, I uh, set you up. <laughs> yeah. You are full of you and your mob, your yeah. generation, your mob are full of shit. See you next week, guys. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure, Harrison. Yeah.